Talk Recorded live. Hello again, everybody. This is Pastor Visser from beautiful downtown Atlanta, Georgia. Well, technically Brooks, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta, but nonetheless, you may notice that it is Sunday, January 24th. It is 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the reason for running a talk shoe program at this time is because uh, Rabbi Martin Lindsay also is. And in doing as such, we technically evade probably about 90% of the trolls that will disrupt the, this particular show. But nonetheless, as it has been announced, which was briefly announced, that is, just to a few people in our forums, this evening we'll be covering the Gospel of Thomas Part 5. And indeed, dear friends, I'm excited to be bringing this to you today. The reason for that is the Gospel of Thomas series from Covenant People's Ministry is a rather strange series. Indeed, the very first segment was, begin, was begun on December 29th, 2010. And in that particular segment, me and Pastor Sean DeClue set up and established what the Gospel of Thomas is. And the Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic text, which means that it's quote-unquote not canonized nor accepted by mainstream churchianity. But nonetheless, in this particular study, we found that there are very little contradictions and quite a few similarities between the Gospel of Thomas and the quote-unquote canonized Gospels as found in the King James Version of the Bible. The second part was preached on January 5th, 2011, and Matt, I covered it solo, and this was before my ascent on Washington State. That's the reason why there was a four-and-a-half to five-month gap before the third part, which came out on April 20th, that is 420, of 2011. That was when I returned here to Brooks, Georgia. And lastly, the fourth part, that is the last part that has been preached, was done over almost a year later on April 15, 2012, which was merely a little over two months ago. And in that particular segment, we had just upgraded our sound system here at the Covenant People's Church, and unfortunately, it was turned all the way up. And in that particular segment, it was a good sermon, but you could hear every single sound from every child, every person in the congregation in that one. So unfortunately, a lot of those sounds bled through. And this is the reason I'm on talk show tonight. Yours truly, Pastor Visser, has only done in excess of approximately four to five shows on the talk show radio network. One of those was the aforementioned Gospel of Thomas Part 1 with me and Bill DeClue. The other ones are, for example, Pearls Before Swine and Beware of Dogs, both of which were interrupted by Rabbi Martin Samuelson. Speaking of Covenant People's Ministry's most loyal enemy, Rabbi Martin Samuelson, I'd like to announce that last night, uh, me and him appeared on the News Guy show, also on this talk show radio network, and it's quite an interesting radio show, to say the least, because I've spent far too much time addressing this slanderer's allegations, but it is quite interesting and refreshing to see how normal sane people can see the insane as what they are. Now, I'll make a disclaimer right now before beginning this study, dear kinsfolk, that, um, you know, George T.K., a.k.a. Sulu from Star Trek, will not be making an appearance, as he supposedly did on June 26 on uh, Rabbi Samuelson's show. 
But, needless to say, the administrator of our forum has emailed the gay rights activist and Japanese uh, actor, George T.K., and uh, we'll see what becomes of it, because I'm sure him as a homosexual Japanese activist won't appreciate having his likeness and character assassinated by the likes of Rabbi Martin Linzen. So, to get into this evening's study, we're going to pick it back up. But, before picking it up where we left off in the Gospel of Thomas, Part 4, I want to give you a brief overview of who Thomas is, and... For the purpose of this particular segment, I will be reading from the Christogenia New Testament. Indeed, I have recently come into having a hardcover copy of this translation by William Fink, the Christogenia New Testament, and I can say that it's, it's definitely a work of merit. It's an extreme amount of work was put into this. And you've heard me preach in the past that I am no Greek expert beyond the tools like the Strong's Concordance and so forth, but... William Fink is, and that being said, I do recommend that you get the Christogenia New Testament, because in time I feel that it will be there right up next to the Farrar Fenton and used in Christian identity. But we read about Thomas in the Gospel of John, that is in our quote-unquote canonized text, in the 20th chapter, and I, again I'll be reading from the Christogenia New Testament, beginning in verse 11. Verse 11 says this, then Maria stood outside the, by the tomb weeping. So as she wept, she peered into the tomb and sees two messengers in white sitting down, one by the head and one by the feet where the body of Yahshua had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why do you weep? Question. She, that is Maria, says to them, Because they have taken my prince, and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying these things, she turned to the rear and saw Yahshua standing, yet did not know that it was Yahshua. Yahshua says to her, Woman, why do you weep? What do you seek? She, supposing that it is the gardener, says to him, Master, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I shall take him. Yahshua says to her, Maria, turning, she turns to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which is said, Teacher. Yahshua says to her, You must not touch me, for I have not yet gone up to the Father. Now you must go to my brethren and tell them, I go up to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Maria goes announcing it to the students that, quote, I have seen the prince, end quote, and the things that he said to her. Then it being late in the day, the first of the week, and the doors being barred where the students were on account of fear of the Judeans, Yahshua came and stood in the middle and says to them, Peace to you. And saying this, he showed the hands and the ribs to them. Therefore the students rejoiced seeing the prince. Then Yahshua said again to them, Peace to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And saying this, he inhaled and says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit of God. The heirs of any of you should forgive, that they are forgiven them. Of any of you should maintain, they are also maintained. Now, pay close attention. Verse 24 in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, who is called Twin was not with them when Yahshua came. Therefore the other students said to him, We have seen the priest. But he said unto them, Unless I should see the imprint of the nails in his hand, and put my finger in the imprint of the nails, where I put my hand in his side, I shall not believe. And after eight days his students were inside again, and Thomas with them. And the doors being barred, Yahshua comes and stood in the middle and said, Peace to you. 
Then he says to Thomas, bring your finger here and look at my hands. And bring your hand and put it into my side that you must not be faithless but faithful. Thomas replied and said unto him, my prince and my God. Yahshua says to him, because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those not seeing and believing. And so, dear kinsfolk, it is established that doubting Thomas, quote-unquote, was considered a skeptic. He, overlaid within his example, is what's known as the natural man. The man who says, I will not believe it unless I see it. And that is the reason why Yahshua Messiah, Jesus Christ, told him, more blessed are those who can believe and not see. Consider the hypocrisy behind this, dear kinsfolk. Thomas walked with Jesus Christ, as did many of the other disciples. But it was only Thomas and Peter, a.k.a. Petros, to whom the church was founded upon, that recognized him for who he truly was. When Thomas saw Jesus Christ, more specifically, when Thomas was able to put his finger inside the side of Jesus Christ to know that this crucifixion had happened, then he believed, and he exclaimed, My God! He straightforwardly recognized that Jesus Christ was the creator of all things. And, dear friends, the Gospel of Thomas will teach no different. In our, quote-unquote, canonized Bibles, in our Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the focus of those Gospels is mainly upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason for that is because many of these Gospels were written long after the Gospel of Thomas. That is the reason why the Gospel of Thomas only has one reference to the cross within it, and we'll be covering it this evening. But because of that one reference, it does not denigrate the sacrifice that was made at the cross. Rather, it proves that during the time of Thomas, during the time that these Gnostic texts were being written, more emphasis was placed upon the teachings, that is, the words of Jesus Christ, as opposed to the miracles of Jesus Christ. And so... With that being said, we will pick it up in the Gospel of Thomas. But notice that Thomas, according to Bill Fink in his translation, is considered a twin. And throughout the rest of Scripture, Thomas is seen as a doubter, a skeptic. And so we must not make the same mistake. We must not be those who have to see in order to believe, because there's a complete hypocrisy behind this. The natural man does not understand those things of the Spirit because they are supernatural. They are from Yahweh God. And so he can walk around in a state of retardation, dumbfounded by those things around him, never even seeing Yahweh God, who is everywhere. It is the Gospel of Thomas that says, lift up a rock and the kingdom of heaven is there. It is Jesus Christ in the same Gospel of Thomas who says, the kingdom of heaven is within you and all around you, meaning that the kingdom of heaven is an established kingdom of Yahweh, yet not seen by the natural eye. So, as, gospel, as the gospel of Thomas is, throughout it all, Thomas tells us that we must seek, as opposed to Jesus Christ in the canonized Bible, who says, seek and ye shall find, or ask and ye shall receive. The main theme of the Gospel of Thomas is that you must do the legwork in order to find the interpretations of these saying. In essence, Jesus Christ does not come along and give you the meaning of the verses in the Gospel of Thomas. What he does is he makes Proverbs. And through man's faithfulness, as we've just covered in the Christogenian New Testament, he's, a, he's able to unlock 
certainties that the average man is not. And so with that groundwork being laid, let's once again pick it up in the Gospel of Thomas. This will be the fifth part, and I'll be, I'll be beginning in the saying 54. That is the Gospel of Thomas, verse 54. It says this, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, stopping right there, there's a similar statement within our canonized Gospels that say quite the same. However, it should be noted that in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus Christ isn't necessarily saying those in the world who do not have money are they only and they, they alone who inherit the kingdom of heaven. Rather, what he is pointing out is the fact that those who are considered, quote-unquote, poor, in the eyes of the world, have sacrificed those worldly things that the natural man holds in such regard. For example, going back to uh, Star Trek Sulu over there on uh, Rabbi Lindsay's show, it's quite disgusting to see a so-called white nationalist grovel at the feet of a Japanese homosexual and say, well, you're quite a celebrity. You think Yahweh God would hold that type of judgment? Or does Yahweh God judge according to the hearts? Indeed, it is Yahweh God who judges us according to our works, not according to how many movies we've made, not according to how many listeners we have, even. And so it is that Jesus Christ said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. It should be pointed out before continuing on that this is quite contrary and the opposite of what is taught in mainstream Judeo-Christianity. Indeed, for they will come along and tell you all you've got to do is open your heart to Jesus Christ, dear friends. And as soon as you open your heart to Jesus Christ, well, the world is your oyster. Suddenly, life is a bed of roses, and you do not suffer persecutions. However, that is not the theme of the Gospel of Thomas, nor is it the theme of the King James Bible. The theme of the whole of Scripture is that you will be persecuted for your beliefs. You will be downtrodden, cast out, and considered, quote-unquote, poor. But here's the biggest irony, and I've already partially pointed it out. Those that are considered, quote-unquote, poor in the eyes of the world are rich in the eyes of Yahweh God. Why? Because these are the type of people who did not store up treasure on earth, but stored up treasure in heaven. The natural man does not have the ability to do that because the natural man does not believe that there is anything more than this. Next saying, that is, verse 55 in the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, He who doesn't hate his father and mother cannot be a disciple of mine. He who doesn't hate his brothers and sisters and bear his cross, as I do, will not be worthy of me. And so once again, we see the same exact statement that is made in the King James Bible. And it is here, and only here, that the term and word cross makes its appearance. And so as I stated, the Gospel of Thomas places less importance on the sacrifice of the cross and more importance on the teachings of Jesus Christ. Almost going as far as to say that if you can unlock these secret sayings that were given to Thomas, that you yourself will earn the kingdom of heaven. But point and case, as it's written in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, Verse 26, Christ says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, here in the Gospel of Thomas, Thomas says that you must pick up your cross. What does a particular individual pick up their cross to do? 
A person bears his cross to die upon it, meaning that if you do not have the scruples or the faculties enough to love God more than your earthly father, earthly mother, and earthly brothers, your priorities are already out of whack. This is the reason why the King James would say, call no man father. You have one father. The natural man's father is his flesh father, because he only sees the flesh. The spiritual man's father is Yahweh God. And so this is the reason why Jesus Christ says this. You must hate mother, father, sister, brother, and etc. Now, we know within Christian identity that this word hate, or at least the word that was transliterated hate, often means love less. And the apologist will come along and say, well, it really just means love less, that you've got to love God more than your family. But I say unto you, dear kinsfolk, it means both. Hate is hate. And those who come along and downplay the aspect of holy hate are already Judaized in a nutshell. Coming out the gate, they already are. Why? The reason for it is we're supposed to hate those that hate our God. We're supposed to hate the sin. We're supposed to hate many things. And I can't even tell you how many times Yahweh God hates in the Bible. But here it is, Jesus Christ saying, we must love God more than any other person on earth. And we must be willing to die for the cause of Christianity or Christ's name. Not gossip, not slander, not hating our brothers because we've decided that we don't like them and want to violate the law of God, but because we love Yahweh God more than them. And this, I might add and interject before continuing, should be a relatively easy commandment for the Christian identist to do. Why? Because narrow is the way and few there be that find it. Christian identity is probably the smallest but most truthful sect of Christianity that exists. And because of that, most of you listening, including myself, have brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, and so forth, who see you and keep you in derision, who want to come along and say, well, you're in a cult, you're a racist, you're all of these things, and hate your God. Whether it be intentional or unintentional, the rule still applies. So if your own brother, your own mother hates you, love God. It's relatively simple. Next saying, verse 57. Jesus said, The kingdom of the Father is like a man with good seed. His enemy came at night and scattered the seed of weeds in with the good seed. The man did not let them pull out the weeds, but said, Don't do it. You might pull out all the grain along with the weeds. During the harvest, the weeds will be obvious, and then they can be removed and burned. And so, dear kinsfolk, you've heard me preach on this before, but what should be noted about this? What should be noted about this teaching of Jesus Christ is that it is absolutely opposite of the way of man. The way of man is to plant a garden and to pull those weeds while they're young, before they're able to suck, leech, and kill the wheat around it. But it is the will of Yahweh. The will of Yahweh is that those tares, those children of the wicked one, as John says in his epistle, the children of Cain, should be left uprooted by those angels at the end of time. And so man will come along and say, there's a rapture. Jesus Christ is a coward. He's going to come and take everybody out of here and leave this world for the devil. But we'll find from the Gospel of Thomas and the King James Version that that's simply not the case. There is no rapture within the Bible, none whatsoever. But, 
if we were to plant tares among wheat, what weeds do is they pull all the source nutrients out of the ground. They rob the true crop from water, from nourishment. The reason Yahweh God allows those tares to exist, sown in amongst the wheat, is so that if you do not turn and seek Yahweh God's face, those tares will leach from you. They will suck you from every bit of morality or mortality you may once possess. This is the will of Yahweh God. And so if you have a garden, dear kinsfolk, it is a wise thing to weed. It is the wisest thing to catch those weeds before they're able to grow and kill your crop. But Yahweh God says not so. Another thing to be pointed out is that Yahweh God is he who exacts vengeance. Just as Obadiah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah preach in our Old Testament, the day of the Lord is a day of fire. It is the day in which he returns in the brightness of his coming and all those rudiments including Captain Sulu from Star Trek, will be burned up, dear kinsfolk. And so while the uh, Judeo sits around looking for their Jesus to come rapture them out of the sky, you and I, the Zadok, the elect, are able to know true truth. Why? Because we have discernment. We can read the word as it's plainly written. It doesn't matter how many times the non-Israelite or the non-believer attempts to read the oracles of God. It will simply be foolishness unto him. So, vengeance is Yahweh God's, and vengeance is Yahweh God's all along. So, if man comes along and says, hey, you know what, let's pull up those tares, let's kill those tares before the time, you should already be able to spot that person as a provocateur, a troublemaker, and a tear himself. Next verse. That is, verse 58 in the Gospel of Thomas, it says this. Jesus said, blessed is one who has labored and found life. Notice, we don't find life on our own. Jesus Christ may call us, but Jesus Christ does not impart upon us eternal life for nothing. We must seek. We must have faith enough that leads us to action in order to inherit the kingdom. This is the main theme of the Gospel of Thomas. Blessed is one who has labored and found life. You're not going to find eternal life without work. Therefore, the Judeo-Christians who sit out there in the Sunday pulpits, week in and week out, time and time again, getting their ears tickled by their false prophets, and being empowered to sin, are already spiritually amoeba. Point in case, you must labor. You must work. You don't come along and listen to Billy Graham and say, well, that's good enough for me. What you do as you seek. It's in the glory of God to conceal a matter, dear kinsfolk, but it is the duty of saints to seek it out. If you want to be saintly, if you want to be a child of God, then you also must seek these things out, which means study to show yourself approved, just as our Bibles teach. Next verse, that is, 59, says this. Jesus said, Look at the living one while you live, for if you die and then try to see him, you will not be able to do so. Point and case. There is no purgatory. There is no second chance. There is no quote-unquote chance of repentance after death. But this is a thought of man, is it not? The thought of the natural man is I'm going to live my life however I want, and essentially I can repent on my deathbed. But, dear kinsfolk, that judgment is Yahweh God's. Jesus Christ is straightforwardly saying, if you do not find nor serve nor know Yahweh God, as you live on this earth age, on this earth, and in this flesh, 
then when you die, you simply will not be able to. How can he say that, and how does that align with our Bibles? The book of Revelation says that when Jesus Christ appears, every knee will bow. Those on the left hand, those Judas goats, those on Jesus' left, whom he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice iniquity, you who suffered lawlessness, will never even see God. Period. They're on their knees, their faces in the dust. Only those on the right, those sheep, who followed and obeyed the law of God, are they who make it in to the eternal kingdom. And so this thought is that, well, when we die, we go to heaven. And whether that be a place off in the heavens, quote-unquote, in the sky, or all around you, as Jesus Christ taught, just a mortal plane that we step into, it is the teaching of Christ that at that point, when that silver cord parts, it is simply too late to repent. And so in Catholicism, there are those who say that, well, I can pray my uh, sinful son out of uh, limbo. Or I can live as a drunkard and do whatever I want, and then when I'm sitting there, I can go ahead and repent and say 25 Hail Marys and so forth. And God will let me out of purgatory and into heaven. It's a bunch of malarkey, dear kinsfolk. None of Scripture confirms it in the Gospel of Thomas, this Gnostic text, which is far more important than the Catholic Bible, says as such. Remember, look at the living one, that is Yahweh God, while you live Practice his laws. Do what he says. Why? Because when you die, you won't be able to. Next verse. Verse 60. They saw a Samaritan going into Judea, carrying a lamb. He asked his disciples, What do you think he will do with that lamb? They replied, He'll kill it and eat it. He, that is Jesus Christ, said to them, As long as it remains alive, he will not eat it. Only if he kills it and it becomes a corpse. They said, Otherwise, he won't be able to do so. He, Jesus Christ, said to them, the disciples, You too must seek a place for rest, or you may become a corpse and eaten. Now, what is Jesus Christ saying here? In essence, what he's saying is, You can be alive or dead, there is no gray area. A lamb that is being carried while it lives is considered a pet. But once that pet is slaughtered, bled, drawn and quartered, that lamb suddenly goes from being a pet and a friend to our meal. But remember, no Israelite, no man, no Adamite will come along and eat a raw lamb while he lives. So in essence, the spiritual teaching behind this particular proverb is this. If we do not dwell within the light that Jesus Christ already established, if we do not seek Yahweh while we live in the flesh, at death it will be too late. And moreover, not even counting death in the flesh, if we become spiritually dead, we are seen as a corpse. Jesus says, they eat the corpse, not the living. You cannot eat the living because they are protected, anointed, and sealed of Yahweh God. But a corpse, my friend, is subject to become meat for the beasts of the field, just as we read in our Old Testament narratives. And so, hearken, dear kinsfolk, take heed. As long as it remains alive, man won't eat it, only if he kills it and it becomes a corpse. And so there is this subject, this thought, this 
illuminated theory out there that, you know, Jesus Christ isn't God, or God is a Jew, and all of these things. What these things can do, dear friends, according to Yahshua Messiah and the Gospel of Thomas, is make you into a corpse, spiritually dead. And I'm sure you know many of these people in your life as it is, those who are completely devoid of the Spirit of God, those who do not know morality or right from wrong. It is written in Scripture that Yahweh God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and that covenant will be written on the hearts of his Zadok, those that were sealed from the beginning, those who stood with Yahweh God and did not fall at Satan's rebellion. Those are the ones who are sealed. In essence, that one-third whom the war is for have an option, the same option that was presented to Adam and Eve in the very beginning, the same choice, a tree of life, a tree of death. Now, we know our scripture straightforwardly says that man prefers death. Man prefers darkness over light. This is the reason why we see death worship in our culture. This is the reason why there's a million and one books, TVs, audios, and so forth, all centering around the topic of death. Why? Well, death personified, that is capitalized, at least according to the book of Revelation in the King James, is Satan. And this is Satan's kingdom. So do not become a corpse, dear kinsfolk. Always strive to know the word of God. Always study to show yourself approved. Next verse, that is 61. It says this. Jesus said, two will lie down in one bed, one will die, and the other will live. And so once again, we see this theme of life and death. But Jesus Christ isn't necessarily talking about a physical life or a death. Rather, he's talking about both. And so we have a spiritual death, those who are spiritually dead. For example, those who commit a sin unto death according to Yahweh's Old Testament law. Those were meant to be taken out and stoned and or put to death. Why? Because it was considered a sin unto death. Meaning that in the eyes of Yahweh God, as long as that sinner dwelt on earth, for example, pedophiles, for example, rapists, they could not know repentance and they could not know Yahweh God. And so it stands today. There are those tares sown in amongst the wheat. There are the genuine and there are the imposters. It is up to you to diligently study to be able to know the difference. So two will lie down in a bed, one will die. The Judeos come along and they take this verse, at least in our, not our regular Bibles, and they'll say, well, there it is, proof of the rapture. One's in a field and one is taken. But they're simply too dull-headed to understand that, just like we covered here in the Gospel of Thomas, that parable of the tares and the wheat, the tares are taken first, period. You want to be left behind, dear kinsfolk. Why? Because the tares are taken first. Not only are they taken first, but they are gathered, and they are burned, not by man, not by Israel. Israel is there, indeed, in the day of the Lord. All the rudiments are destroyed, all your enemies are destroyed, and you, dear Israelite, man, woman, or child, shall see it according to the Old Testament prophets. But you will not engage in it. And that's the difference, dear friends. When you see these maniacal rabbis out there talking about, I can't wait to go and kill so-and-so in judgment, you should already know their spirit is in the wrong place. Because all of Scripture testifies to that one fact. That's not to say that we're to be second-class citizens or allow the world to use us as, our foot, as, a, as its footstool. That is to say... We are not to go out and engage in needless violence against anybody, 
To do so is to show a lack of faith in the God we profess to follow. Point in case. Next verse says this. Actually, 61 continues. 61b. Salome asked him, Who are you, man? As though coming from someone, you have come under my couch and eaten from my table. Jesus replied, I am he who comes into being from him who is the same. Some of the things my father have been given to me. Salome said, I am your disciple. Now what you need to get down from verse 61b is this. That Jesus Christ's reply to Salome is this. I am, first and foremost, the sacred name of Yahweh God. Continuing on, I am he who comes into being from him who is the same. What is Jesus Christ saying? Jesus Christ is saying he is the creator, dear friends. Jesus Christ is saying he created himself. He is he who came into being from what? From he who is the same. Jesus Christ tells Salome, I am he who created all things. I am the creator. And so while the Judeos have a really hard time grasping this concept that Jesus Christ was not only the Son of God, but also God manifest in the flesh, or Emmanuel meaning God with us, the truth still stands, period. The Son of God, Jesus Christ was. But never neglect to understand that Adam was the Son of God, Satan was the Son of God. And therefore, when we say that Jesus Christ is merely and only the Son of God, we're denigrating him to the level that the Jews do. In essence, making him a great man, a good man, but not a supernatural deity. Jesus Christ had the keys of life and death. He proved that with his death, burial, and resurrection. He proved he was God in casting out demons and healing the sick. Only for man to come along and say, I don't believe Jesus Christ is the creator. I don't believe Jesus Christ is God. I believe he's the son of God. Well, are you a son of God, dear friends? Indeed we are. And so a spiritual son of God was no different. And overlaid within Jesus Christ, the creator of all Israel, the bridegroom for the very bride itself, is an example. An example that we must follow. An example that Thomas was unable to follow until he was able to put his very finger within the wounds. The wounds in Jesus' side. The wound that the Roman centurions poked within him. The wounds in his hands that they crucified him for, and so forth. The torturous act. And so we know who Salome is. Salome appears in our gospel narratives in the regular New Testament. She was also considered to be one of those, at least according to the Gospel of Mark, who helped Mary Magdalene anoint the body of Jesus Christ for burial and give it to Joseph of, Mar of Arimathea. And so that's who this is. She also appears during the beheading of John the Baptist, although that Salome is quite different. That's Herod's daughter-in-law. Continuing on, verse 61c, same verse. Therefore, I say that if one is unified, one will be filled with light. But if one is divided, one will be filled with darkness. Understand this very simple concept that Jesus Christ is teaching you. The main goal of a true Christian, or one who knows the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one who dwells within the light, is not division or seclusion, or segregation, at least from your own people, but rather unification, unified 
if we're unified, if we're one, if we engage in fellowship and we strive together, then and only then will we be filled with light. How can Jesus say that? Simple. He said straightforwardly, wherever two or more gather in my name, not wherever two or more gather, but in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So, what can be said about this verse? Those that subjugate themselves off, those that put themselves on the opposite end of the talk show network and say they're a pope and condemn everybody else within Christian identity are in what? Darkness. There's no unification. The, the goal, the ultimate goal in the striving of every Christian identity should be for unity. Oh, indeed, we can come along and discuss doctrinally and theologically the no-devil doctrine, for example. We could come along and we can reason together within the scriptures. But if we go out and start attacking one as a universalist, if we go out and start attacking one as a mamzer with no proof, we are already in darkness. Now, there shouldn't be any shock when we understand that scripture says mankind prefers darkness. They don't like the light. Why don't they like the light? Light, first and foremost, shines. And just as it is, if we were to come to a low-level apartment in New York and pop the light on at 2 o'clock in the morning, you'd see a thousand and one cockroaches scurrying up the walls and under the sofas and so forth. So it is with man. Man does not like the word of God. They do not like God himself, that is Yahweh God, because through his word and through God's existence, man is made accountable. Just as James comes along and says man can look in a mirror and forget what manner of man he is, so it is that the natural man exists. And so if we make that mistake, if we subjugate ourselves off, we will dwell in darkness. We will be filled with darkness. Those that are in darkness, dear friends, cannot see. If a person is born blind, they don't know anything different than blindness. Those that dwell within darkness cannot ever come to the full realization that they are in that same said darkness. Oh, no. Rather, the other type of people, like the adulterous woman in Proverbs who wipes their mouth and says, I've done no evil... They're the ones who go and gossip and engage in all sorts of violations of the law of God and say, well, God's not real. He's not going to catch me. Understand. How can I say that? Next verse. Verse 62 in the Gospel of Thomas. It says, Jesus said, I tell my mysteries to people worthy of my mysteries. Worthy. Are you worthy, dear kinsfolk? The King James Bible says many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus Christ says narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. Many follow the broad way, the wide way, the most logically, universally accepted way, which is Catholicism. Most beyond that follow Protestantism. But whatever it is they follow, most of them are spoon-fed the lies from their pulpit every weekend because that's how they desire it. And as I've preached in the past, the slanderer will seek out other slanderers so they can be justified in their own hypocritical beliefs. So it is with those that aren't worthy. Many in Judeo-Christian Christianity may have a good heart. 
They may have a heart inclined unto understanding, but because of those false prophets, because of the Judeos who come along and tell them falsehoods and things that are simply not in the Scripture, they take away the keys of life. Therefore, Jesus Christ here in the Gospel of Thomas, verse 62, is providing his followers a way. A way that is, you do not need a pastor, you do not need even the Bible. How can I say that? Because Jesus Christ is able to do whatever he decides to do. He can work his miracle on earth. Jesus Christ will impart upon you the key to his mysteries. Proverbs begins by saying, with all thy getting, that is understanding, get wisdom and understanding. They are two entirely different things. For example, we can be wise in the fact that the Israelites are the white, Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic people. We can be wise in that. And having that tidbit of truth in and of itself is considered wisdom. But a person at the same time can possess that tidbit of wisdom and not fully understand it. This is the reason why with all thy getting you must get understanding. A head full of wisdom, especially worldly wisdom, avails nothing if we don't understand how to exercise it, how to discern it, and how to go about becoming blessed. If you want to know the mysteries, pray to Jesus Christ that he makes you and calls you to be worthy of knowing his mysteries. Because I assure you, dear kinsfolk, you will not find the answer from Joel Olstein. Ha- Joel you will not find the answer from Billy Graham. This simply does not exist. They cannot give you the answer because they are the blind leading the blind. They are they who are in darkness, and why do they dwell within that darkness according to Jesus Christ? Because they hate the light. Because they are segregated instead of unified. Continuing on in verse 62. That is 62b. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus said... Once there was a rich man who had lots of money, and he said, I will invest my money so that I can sow, reap, plant, and fill up my silos with crops so that I won't lack anything. So he thought. But that night he died. He who has ears, let him hear. And once again, we see Jesus Christ is saying he gives his mysteries to whom he gives his mysteries to. What is he saying in that? Do you have eyes to see what is written? Do you have ears to hear What Jesus is saying, what he's saying is this, the way of the natural man, a.k.a. rich man, is to come along and store up treasures on earth. Oh, he can say, I'm going to buy lots of land, I'm going to put in lots of crops, and I'm going to take all this corn, I'm going to make wine, I'm going to take grain, I'm going to do all these beautiful things, and I'm going to stockpile it in my silos. And I'll sit in the town square and everybody will know that I have the most food, aren't I great, aren't I pious, aren't I rich. And guess what? He dies. Yahweh God takes his soul. At that night, his soul is required of him. And the irony behind this is, what did any of these things avail that man? What does it matter, dear friends, if you spend your whole life in the worldly pursuit of desire, finances, money, temporal gifts, or whatever, and die losing your soul? And just as I began this part five in the Gospel of Thomas, I pointed out that Jesus Christ said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. This is exactly why he's saying it. Those who are poor have a tendency 
to not put faith in themselves, to not go along and say, I'm going to stockpile all these things, nor even have the means to do as such. But at the same time, Yahweh God, their God, will come along and provide them with everything they have need of. What am I saying? The natural man can't understand that because the natural man is never satisfied. They're insatiable. And point in case, that's the way of it. The faithful man, however, will put all his faith in Yahweh God. And if Yahweh God gives him crumbs, he knows that those crumbs are enough. The natural man is never enough. There's never enough money. There's never enough pleasure. There's never enough drugs. There's never enough booze. There's never enough slander. And there's never enough gossip. This is the reason why these will always exist. These tares will always be here. And what they will do is the same thing time and time again. Make up lies and attack their straw man. So, do you have ears to hear? Understand that nothing here that we store up for ourselves will avail us in the judgment of Yahweh God. And just as it says in the King James Version of the Bible that we're not to store up treasures on earth, we're to store them up in treasure, treasures in heaven. The reason for that is so straightforwardly clear. Would you, dear friend, want to stand before your Creator, He who gave you your life, He who guided every single footstep you made in life, and have not so much as one righteous work to your credit? Many people will. And sadly, many people will believe that because their antinomian Judeo-Christian pastors, quote-unquote, tell them first and foremost coming out the gate that the law of God is done away with. Jesus Christ said it's finished on the cross, that's all there is. Because they've obviously never written or read the 22nd Psalm. Don't make that mistake. Understand that Yahweh God is everywhere. He who is created of Yahweh God can look at a tree and know that Yahweh God gave that tree life. That Yahweh God sends the rain and the latter rain to feed that same said tree. The natural man looks at a tree and says, it's coincidence. There's no God. So which side of the fence do you stand on? Because just like the kingdom of heaven being in you and all around you, we're dealing with a matter of perception. How do we perceive the natural man can't perceive the spirit, their foolishness to them. They're the type of people who listen to this broadcast and say, oh, silly, stupid Christian. You know, as if life without God is somehow better. As if life being a godless queer is somehow better. But even though those same said people exist, they're the same type of people who will seek out exactly what's in their heart. As I said in the past, when I preach monogamy, several people will leave and they'll go find a preacher who preaches polygamy. When I attack homosexuals, there's a few people who will leave the Covenant People's Forums or the ministry, what have you, and they'll go out and they'll find a pastor who does teach homosexuality. And the reason I say this is to point the importance of studying. It always, dear friends, comes back to you. We cannot save our souls ourself, but we can have works to our credit that will help us in judgment. Next verse. That is the longest verse in the Gospel of Thomas, and it's 64. It begins by saying this. Jesus said, A man entertained guests. When dinner was ready, he made a servant to invite his guests. The servant went to the first one and said, My master invites you. But he replied, I have to collect money from some merchants, and they are due to arrive this evening. Therefore, I have to do business with them, and I must be excused from the dinner. The servant went to another and said, My master invites you. But he said, I have just bought a house, and I have to spend a day there, so I cannot come. 
I must be excused. So he went to the next and said, My master invites you. This one replied, My friend is about to be married, and I must organize the dinner. I can't come. I must be excused. Again he went and said to another, My master invites you. He replied, I have just bought a village, and I have to go collect the rent. I can't come and must be excused. The servant reported back to his master, Those whom you invited to the dinner are unable to come. The master said, Go to the roads outside and invite anybody you can find to the dinner. And so we find a similar teaching in the King James teachings of the parables of Jesus Christ. And it is no different. Within Christian identity especially lies the danger of becoming a Pharisee. What the Pharisees' mistake was, aside from mostly being Edomite Jews, standing in the seat of Moses, professing to teach the law that they were hypocrites against, was the fact that they believed they were somehow special because they were Abraham's seed. So, what do you do with that truth? Many people out there don't know that truth. You get that pearl of wisdom, nine times out of ten, the person will take it and run with it and go out and start pounding it down people's heads. Guess what? We're Israel. But what does that avail you? What does it matter? Here we see once again another proverb. And it was Jesus Christ in our own Bibles who said that God himself is able to raise up stones to Abraham's seed. Is Jesus Christ saying that Abraham's seed is not important? No. Rather, quite the contrary. He's saying Abraham's seed is important. But if you turn around and worship the creation more than the creator, if you turn around and put more stock in your race over the grace of Jesus Christ and the atonement that he laid down for one and all times on the cross at his sacrifice, dear friends, you become a Pharisee. You become one of these people who spends all your time saying, well, I don't like this guy because he has red hair. He must be a picked. He's not Israelite. I don't like this guy because he's Italian, got dark hair. He must be a spick. He's not an Israelite. All of this is foreign to Christian identity. But all of these faulty dogmas come from one belief. And that belief is that somebody, somewhere, is somehow special because they're Aryan, because they're white, because they recognize Joseph's birthright. That, dear friends, is a danger that we must not fall into. And as I preached about two months ago in my sermon, Houses of Sand, if we build our house upon sand, what is a house church? What does sand represent in Scripture? People. If we build our house upon our race, that house is built on sand and will wash away. If we recognize our race and the importance that it plays within the plan of Yahweh God, and keep ourselves what? Poor, slash, a.k.a. humble, therein lies the key. And this is the reason why Jesus says this. All these people were chosen. Each one of these people were chosen by the Master, quote-unquote, that is Yahweh God. And each one of them had something worldly to do. They didn't have time for God or Jesus. Oh, no. One person says, I just bought an entire town. Aren't I important? I'm the mayor. I must go collect rent. What did he lose? Eternal life. What does this dinner represent, dear friends? If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you'll realize and understand that this dinner is the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is when Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, for one and all time, reclaims his bride. And half of those virgins, I might add, are cut out, locked out. Why? Well, first and foremost, they didn't have the oil. They were ill-equipped. And secondly, they were too engaged in the things of the world that they did not 
take provisions and have the forethought enough to go and buy those oil. They, those five foolish versions, were no different than each one of these people who were chosen of God. And when they heard the call of Yahweh God, when they felt his touch, were too busy to answer that call. Understand it. This is the point in which Yahweh God will come and impart wisdom to you. Are you able to listen? The natural man cannot. The natural man spends all his time talking, so much so that they have no time to learn. The wise man, the spiritual man, spends half of his time talking and half of his time listening, if not more. And through listening, through observing, and through just tact, having wisdom, is able to learn and glean that anywhere not through segregation. You can walk into Billy Graham's church and at least learn how not to be. You can walk into a synagogue and know how the children of the devil live. These things cannot defile you. These things cannot trick you. That is, unless you are faithless. And that is the importance that Jesus Christ lays down in this Gospel of Thomas. We must have faith. Why? Because faith isn't sitting on your ass watching television every night. Faith leads to action. This is the reason why James, the brother of Christ, could say faith without works is dead. You can walk around all you want saying, I believe, I believe in Jesus Christ. What if Jesus Christ doesn't believe in you? Secondly, the devils believe and tremble. What does belief mean? Nothing. The atheist, in, a, in essence and in excess, believes in God. They don't worship them. The Satanist believes in God. They just turn from him. So don't make the mistake of thinking that all you have to do is believe. We must have works. Next verse. Continuing on in verse 64, says this. Merchants and salesmen will not enter the places of my father. Period. Now, I'm going to point out to you that this one part of verse 64 was actually added in by a scribe at a later date because he's attempting to sway you into a belief based on the preceding part of the verse. The preceding part of the verse is all of those things. And so this scribe much later adds, merchants and salesmen will not enter the palaces of my father. And so it stands here in the year, in the year 2012. And I'm reading, to, reading it to you now, and it's saying the same exact thing. So, as Jesus Christ said, Woe unto ye lawyers, for ye shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So it is that the gospel of Thomas says, Merchants and salesmen shall not enter into the places of my Father. But is Thomas saying that Jesus claimed that everybody who owns a bait shop, a record store, a mom-pop auto shop won't enter into the kingdom of heaven? Or in the context of that verse is Jesus Christ saying that those who put more emphasis and more importance in the things of the world rather than the calling of God will not inherit the kingdom of God. Dear friends, that's exactly what he's saying. So if we spend more time being merchants and salesmen, meaning striving for that almighty dollar and working for a successful career as opposed to working for a successful and healthy spiritual life, you will not be able to enter into the places of my Father. He doesn't say heaven. He doesn't say you're not able to go floating off into the space age realm somehow. He says you will not enter into the places of my Father. 
Once again, we see a confirmation that the kingdom of heaven is all around you. It is within you. It is everywhere. It is merely a point and or a place that an Israelite who is chosen and sealed will step into. Next verse. Verse 65 says this. He, Jesus Christ, said, A good man had a vineyard that he arranged for tenant farmers to take care of for him in return for a portion of the produce. He sent a servant to collect the grapes. Tenant seized the servant and beat him to nearly to death. That servant reported back to his master, but his master responded, Perhaps they did not recognize him. So he sent another servant, and the tenants beat him also. Then the owner sent his own son, saying, Perhaps they will show some respect for my son, since the tenants were aware that he would inherit the vineyard. They seized him, and then they killed him. Let he who has ears, let him hear. What is Jesus saying? Once again, do you have ears to hear? Do you have eyes to see what's written? What Jesus Christ is clearly pointing out is not what we read in our Gospels when the same narrative is explained. Rather, God, rather Thomas' interpretation is entirely different. He foregoes altogether God being this master, sending his son, and rather attributes it to the natural man. And this is the way of the natural man. The natural man may send one servant, let that servant go, get beat down, come back in a bloody pulp, and send another servant. And when it's all said and done, and that servant returns, well, the way of the natural man, who's an absolute fool in his heart, is to say, let me go ahead and send my son. Gee, expecting a different outcome. When he's sending, he who inherits that vineyard anyway. And so the way of it is, we must strive for wisdom. Because a man who lives his entire life devoid of Yahweh God is just like this man, quote-unquote. Note he was good. He was a good man. But what did that attribute him? What was his reward? His reward for his decisions, this good man, was the death of his own son and the beating of two of his servants. And so we can see also, in a way, this is overlaid within our Gospels as well. For it was Yahshua who came who was sent, more specifically, by Yahweh God. And it pleased Yahweh God to bruise the Son. And he came to lay down his life for one and all times. And so, we can see this two different ways. But the spiritual man will not make the same mistake over and over and over. How can I say that? Because the definition of insanity is repeating the same mistake over and over and expecting different results. This is what this good man did. Didn't matter how many tenants he sent. Didn't matter how many times they got beat down. In the end, he made a foolish decision. A decision that was not wise, at least in the way of flesh. And that decision earned him a reward of the loss of his son, and most likely, the loss of his own vineyard. Why? Jesus explains it in the very next verse. Verse 66 in the Gospel of Thomas says this, Jesus said, show me, the storm, show me the stone that the builders rejected. It is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is what the builders rejected. The builders of what? The builders of churches. The builders of theological schools. The builders of Judeo-Christian churches who come along and say, Jesus Christ is not God. What is that but denying the cornerstone? Understand, we must build our home, our church, and in essence, our community and government, based upon the law of God. But if we reject that stone, Jesus Christ, the living stone, 
then we walk around in blindness as well. We know before continuing that this is covered as well. It's written in Psalm 118 in our King James Bible. Verse 22 reads this, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone with the, which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. And so, a man can come along and build his home or church upon slander, upon gossip, upon easy believism. He could come along and just create damnable hypotheses. He could say whatever he says, but the reality is, is it will not stand. Why? Because it's not established on the cornerstone. How can I say that? Very simple. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If we understand that Jesus Christ is the living Word, and it's confirmed in the book of Revelation, that he who rides the white horse is the Word of God. If you understand that Jesus Christ is the Word, who taught and prayed in John seventeen seventeen that until keep them in thy word, thy word is truth, then we understand why it was that Jesus Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus Christ is that living word. And so, this word, the Bible, a.k.a. the Scripture, the Septuagint, the Christogenian New Testament, whatever you call it, is what? The cornerstone. If you're going to a church and they're teaching you gossip, they're teaching you current events, political correctness, my suggestion to you, dear friends, is get out of that church immediately. Why? Because they're rejecting the cornerstone. Everything must center around Jesus Christ, and more importantly than just centering around Jesus Christ and his teachings in the New Testament, is the recognition of him being God. Understand that Thomas it was who had to learn the hard way. Oh, indeed, he had to see the wounds. What did he inherit? He may have inherited the kingdom of God. He may have been praised by Yahshua Messiah himself. But he didn't earn a reward that would be any greater than you or I who believe without seeing. The way of the foolish man is to come along and say, I've got to have a sign. That's the sign of a wicked and perverse generation, according to both Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. That word generation means genios. It means race. So a wicked and perverse race are those who come along and say, I have to have a sign. Boy, in order for God to prove to me that he exists, I want him to send a lightning bolt down right now to strike me down. I'm sure you've heard the sentiment before. Many people will say that. They'll say, well, if there was a God, how could he allow so much suffering in the world? And the answer to that is, dear friends, God doesn't allow the suffering in this world. We do. And every time we turn from the law of God, this is what happens. But the natural man, every time. Chaos, disaster, famines, floods, destruction or pestilence strikes, what do they do? They turn to Yahweh God, or they blame Yahweh God. And they say, how could God send this earthquake upon Jamaica who doesn't know God? And they sit there really wondering, scratching their heads as to why it is. Why did God send a tsunami to wipe out part of Asia? Maybe it's because they're not called. They're not chosen. The way of the Judeo-Christian is to say, oh, we must do something. The way of Jesus Christ is to say it's not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Dogs. Animals. And that's the way of it. So if we cast our pearls before swine, dear friends, just like Scripture says, Peter says we should not be shocked if they turn around and roll back in the mud, if they turn around and rend you. 
I myself have seen it with Rabbi Lindsay, who I gave clout within the movement, who went out and bit my hand. Now, am I saying that to toot my own horn, dear friends? Absolutely not. Am I saying that because I'm shocked? Absolutely not. What I'm saying is I'm not shocked at all. Because the truth of the matter is this. My own friend that did break bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And this is the way of it. A brother loveth at all times, according to Solomon in Proverbs. A friend loveth at all times. But that brother, that same brother we're supposed to hate, quote-unquote, in order to follow Jesus Christ, will betray you. A brother is born for adversity. That's where enmity comes from. This is the reason why Jacob and Esau did not get along. This is the reason why Abraham and the twelve patriarchs had family trouble. This is the reason why, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, we see domestic disputes and domestic problems. None of these examples in the Old Testament or the New, save Jesus, are meant to be perfect. They're examples of how not to be sometimes. And so, don't be shocked when we have rebellion within our own family. Don't be shocked because Jesus Christ said we're not supposed to marvel anyway. The world will hate you. They hate your God. They hate the accountability you bring with them. Leave them be. Let them do what they must. And so, continuing on, at verse 67, Jesus said, One who knows everything else, but who does not know himself, knows nothing. Let me read that one more time. And Rabbi Samuelson, I know you're going to be listening to this in archive, even though you're broadcasting now. Get this through your head, buddy. Jesus said, one who knows everything else, but doesn't know himself, knows nothing. Reality is that the hypocrite can't see he's a hypocrite. The retard doesn't know he's retarded. And in essence, the man who thinks he's something is nothing. This is confirmed by our Bible. Any man who thinketh he is something is nothing, lest he should be period. And so this is the way of it. If you walk around and you know everything, Russ Walker, if you walk around and you know everything about botany and science and everything there is to know, but you don't know the ugly wormwood that dwells within your soul, if you don't know how retarded you sound to other people, if you don't know humility, you know nothing, according to Jesus Christ. And that will always stand, dear kinsfolk. This is the way of the hypocrite. The hypocrite says they know everything, but in reality, only a dumbass would profess to know that. Do you know everything, dear friends? Does anybody down here know everything? Nobody does. And the reality is it's only the fool who thinks he knows everything because you must be retarded to think you do. So beware of those types of people. And I'm going to go ahead and do a time check real quick and see if anybody wants to call in. If you want to call in, go ahead and do so. It is now 1021, which means I've been going exactly one hour and five minutes. That means it's a good time to go ahead and cut it off because the rest of the Gospel of Thomas series is exactly one hour. But I will go for an additional 10 minutes or so, meaning if you want to go ahead and call in, you'll go ahead and do so at this time. And I'll go ahead and continue on in the Gospel of Thomas for Biller. Because I really don't want to send you guys Obadiah, Frankenwigger. I don't want to send you guys over there to have to listen to Rabbi Samuelson. Ah, I wouldn't wish that on my enemy. Verse 68, Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, Blessed are you when they hate and persecute you. No place will be found where they persecuted you. Do you have, do you have faith in that? Because Jesus Christ is saying, 
to not be marvel. Don't be shocked. It's not some great revelation that the world hates you. Rather, have faith in the fact that those who did mock you and those places that did scorn you will not stand in the day of judgment. They will be removed. That is the way of Yahweh God. Why? Because they're rudiments. Rudiments are to be taken out. So, blessed are you. You want to heap blessings on yourself? Go ahead and have people vilify you. Go ahead and have people come to your chat room on TalkShoe and try and scroll it. And go ahead and have people go out there and lie and spread malicious gossip on you. Why? You should welcome it. Blessed are you. I'd rather be hated by the Jew if it means I'm loved more of Yahweh God than to be loved by Captain Sulu, a.k.a. TK, and be groveling before the feet of a Japanese homosexual, as Rabbi Samuelson recently did. No place will be found where they persecuted you. Why? Because it is the will of Yahweh God. You must have faith in that. The Judeo-Christian sits around and says, well... We're just going to sit around and let God deliver us. God's going to get us out of this mess so I can sit here and watch Sunday night football and not have to worry about anything else. But that's not the proper mindset, dear friends. Must have faith. Thomas had faith after he saw. Thomas was a skeptic. The natural man is skeptical by nature. This is the reason why you see him trying to explain simple things like Jesus Christ can't be God and both the Son. Jesus couldn't have created and been born into the Virgin Mary. or Jesus couldn't walk on water. He walked on sand dunes. I'm sure you've heard these justifications, dear friends, because people make them all the time. Why? Because they don't have faith. God is this, omnipotent. God is this, all things to all people. He can be an angel to some, a demon to others. But the reality is, is if you don't know God... You're, in essence, the blind leading the blind. You're like the one in the verse preceding saying, he who knows everything but doesn't know himself. And in essence, you know nothing. Verse 69, part A. Pay close attention. Jesus said, blessed are those who have been persecuted within themselves. They have really come to know the Father. Now, what's Jesus Christ saying? There are persecutions within the world. And many people will come along, and they will persecute you for your beliefs. They'll come along, and they'll call you all sorts of names. That's fine. The one who truly knows God most of all is usually he who is persecuted within themselves. Why? Because they're not out there striving to achieve how politically correct they can become. They're not out there day in and day out. Rather, they are they who feel a sense of disgust when homosexuals get married. They are they who feel a sense of disgust when we see frivolous sex practices or whatever abomination they're leashing upon the people. They are the people who feel the spirit or Uruk of God that was breathed within them enough to feel a sense of disgust when they see the races mixing. They're not like the hypocrites who come along and want to be uh, those who say, hey, I love diversity. Let's go ahead and preserve diversity by race mixing it away into a dull gray. They're not like the hypocrite homosexuals who want to deny a child either maternal or paternal love by living in that queer practice. So we must understand this. The law is written on the heart of every Adamite, true Adamite. Good man, you could be a good man. You could have white skin. All these things don't necessarily matter, and all these things do not make you saved. Period. Point in case. And so 
as they walk around, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and all those people, and they say, and they take stock and faith and put faith within their own arm and their own flesh, their houses will not stand. Those who are inwardly tortured, those who feel as if this world is not their home, they are the ones who really come to know Yahweh God. And so understand that. When Rabbi Samuelson comes along and he says, you look tortured, huh, I wonder why. Understand that the persecutions of the world, the, the persecutions at the ADL or the Southern Poverty Law Center may send your way are nothing compared to the persecutions you should be experiencing within your inner soul. Every time you turn on the television, every time you go out in society and you see what man has done with God's beautiful, initially once perfect created earth. The natural man can't see that. All they think is, oh, it's, the world's so much better. For example, TK, Captain Sulu, when he called into Rabbi Samuelson, you honestly think for a minute that a homosexual rights activist who spends all his time attacking the Ku Klux Klan is going to call into something like that? Some do. And, you know, they may fall to these little tricks and try and make a name for themselves, but <laughs> I think it's quite funny. Like I said, we sent an email. I want to see what old George TK has to say about all that. But continuing on. 69, continuing on, same verse, part B. Blessed are those who are hungry in order to fill the bellies of the needy. We should be hungry, not for food that fills our belly, but we should be hungry to feed the bellies of those who are hungry. That's the difference between the selfish man who stockpiles grain in his silo and the unselfish man who grows wheat to feed his kinsfolk. Just as Jesus Christ said, it's not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. What do we do with our excess? What do we do with the blessings that we have? Do we go ahead and stockpile them and try and hold them, hold them and keep them away from everybody else? Or do we share them, that pearl of great wisdom? I say, dear friends, we should share them. Next verse. Verse 70. Jesus said, when you give rise to that which is within you, what you have will save you. If you do not give rise to it, what you do not have will destroy you. And so, dear friends, I've heard Pastor Pete Peters, when he was living, teach many, many times that it's not what we know that destroys us. Rather, it's what we don't know that isn't so, or what we do know that isn't so, which destroys us. And so we see this proverb. Man can lean unto his own understanding. Man can say, I've got it all figured out. I know Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. I know the entire Bible. Oh, I'm Israelite. That's all i got to do. I can sit around, judge other people, and talk about a bunch of meaningless gossip. Jesus says, when you give rise to that which is within you, what should be within you? He already laid it down. He already said it in this sermon. In essence, you can have light or you can have darkness. There is no gray area. There is no, I have a little light. I'm a little illuminated. You either are sealed and called and chosen, or you simply are not sealed, called, and chosen. If you are not sealed, called, and chosen, then you are like those who get a visit from the master's servant who say, come, you're invited. Come to the dinner. And you may have that choice to say, I'm too busy. I want to stockpile my silo. I need to collect my rent. I need to wash my car. 
But if you're sealed, you simply cannot make that mistake. This is where all the confusion in Christian identity comes in from the statement, all Israel shall be saved. Because nine times out of ten, what a person thinks of when they hear that is, how can you come along and say, if you're white, you're saved, period. It doesn't matter how you live, but that's not what those verses say. It's not saying you can go out and live how you want, you can commit all the sins you want, and because you've got white skin, you're saved. What it's saying is the exact opposite. What it's saying is that if you are sealed, all Israel is sealed, but he who is born of God cannot sin. And if he cannot sin, then his seed remains within him. This is the teaching of the King James Bible. This is the reason why all Israel is saved. What's that, what that is saying is that if someone goes out who has white skin, falls, turns from God, and decides they would rather live in a debaucherous lifestyle, guess what? It's really simple. They never were Israel. They may have white skin, but they were in essence considered a tear of God. So the statement is absolutely simple within its context. The context is, is that everyone who is saved is an Israelite. So give rise to that which is within you, the lightness, the light. And why? Because that light will save you. Why? Jesus Christ is the light. And if you do not give rise to it, what you do not have will destroy you. Many people out there do not have any wisdom whatsoever. And perhaps sadder than having no wisdom at all is those who sit around in complacency, not even caring about wisdom. Those who spend every single night, day in and day out, watching television and say, well, it doesn't really matter because when I get judged, I'm just going to say Billy Graham lied to me. That's not an excuse we'll have. Or they say it doesn't really matter because I'll just pray myself out of purgatory, as we've proven already this evening that's simply not a biblical teaching it's nowhere to be found and it can't be established as doctrine there is no purgatory verse 71 jesus said i will destroy this house and no one will be able to build it again and that's point case it wasn't on the part of the Jew to murder Jesus Christ. And I don't know how many times I have to put this down. Yes, the Jew is responsible for the blood of Jesus Christ. The Jew stood at the foot of the cross saying, His blood be upon us and our children forever. But don't underestimate the fact that Jesus Christ laid down his life. And as Jesus Christ was able to lay down his life willingly as a sacrifice, so it is that Jesus Christ can say in the sayings of the Gospel of Thomas, verse 71, I will destroy this house, and not one will be able to build again. How can he say that? We've already covered it. His answer to Salome, what was it? He is he who is created from himself, in essence. And so, as it stands, Jesus Christ being Emmanuel, God with us, God manifest in the flesh, that word in the beginning, that word made flesh, whatever name you want to attribute to him, but all names say the same thing, that he is Yahweh. He is able to destroy that house and build it up again. And he did build it up again at his resurrection. Next verse, 72. A man, just an indiscriminate man, no one really special, therefore his name's not transcribed. A man said to him, talk to my brothers so that they will divide my father's property with me. Jesus replied, man, who made me a divider? He turned to his disciples and asked him, really, am I a divider? And so he's not. The answer to the question is not given. 
But Jesus Christ himself answers that question with a question. Am I a divider? What do you think, dear friends? Jesus Christ did not come to divide. In fact, it was already covered in this today. Jesus Christ said we must be unified. Only through unification, through fellowship, through the body of Christ, are we able to come into the light. Those who segregate themselves dwell continually within darkness. And so that's the reason why. He's not a divider. He came to bring together. He came to make whole the sick, to give life to the dead, to raise the dead, to do all things that were righteous, pure, and good. Opposite of what many people out there in mainstream Christianity, and even within Christian identity, attempt to try and teach you. He was our perfect example. And as such, if you want to be disciplined in the ways of Jesus Christ, then we must do what he did. That's not to say we must willingly lay down our life, but that we must have the meek enough spirit to do as such if called upon. How can I say that? Jesus Christ said, no greater love has any man except to lay down his life for his kinsfolk. Are you able to do it? It's one thing to give lip service. It's another thing to actually live it. Next verse. Jesus said, the harvest is great, but there are only a few workers. Ask the master to send more workers for the harvest. He said, Master, there are many around the drinking barrel, but there is nobody in the well. Jesus said, There are many standing by the door, but only the single will enter the bridal suite. The single. What is that saying? He or she who is spiritually chaste at that time. What time? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Him and him alone is he who will be able to enter in. Single, not in the aspect that they're necessarily not married, but single in the aspect that they're not polluted and defiled by dogmas that don't exist. That they recognize their Creator and understand that Yahshua Messiah is the Bridegroom, and in understanding that, and only then, is a person able to understand that they then are the Bride, and that together they become one. This, in a nutshell, is what heaven is. The kingdom of heaven is wherever Yahweh God dwells. Yahweh God is omnipotent, meaning the kingdom of heaven is wherever he wants it to be. The harvest is great, but there's only a few workers. What is harvest? We already covered the parable of the tares and the wheat, according to Thomas. And we already covered the fact that God said, leave those tares in there to suck up all the nutrients and rob water of life, a.k.a., from the genuine wheat from the barley company. Why would he do that? Because those are the pricks in your side. Those are the thorns and thistles that must be brought forth from the Protoevangelian curse on all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So the harvest is great. Harvest is the point in which there is no more growth does not matter in late fall how much you water your corn. It does not matter in late fall how many nutrients you provide in your soil. You're not going to allow or bring any additional crop when it's harvest time. Now, a smart, wise farmer would pull his weeds, tares, while they're young. So they don't do exactly what Yahweh God wants them to do. And so I can say that, in essence, about Rabbi Samuelson think he's quite entertaining, but if anything he is, that's what he is. A leech who will suck not only nutrients, water, and teaching, but your time up. 
want to spend all your time debating with a rabbi. Don't get me wrong. There's a time and a place for everything. and I love to proverbially smack down that fool. But we must keep everything in a perfect balance. We must teach. In season and out of season, we must preach. We must tell our kinfolk what we believe the truth to be. Why? Because the harvest is great. There's tons of people out there that will be harvested with the tares. But after harvest comes separation. And according to Thomas, there is no chance when you're dead, when you become a corpse, there is no chance to turn and change or thwart your life. So do it and do it now. Next verse, 67. Excuse me, 76. A. Jesus said, The kingdom of the Father is like a merchant with goods to sell who has found a pearl. The merchant was thoughtful. He sold the merchandise and bought himself the pearl. And so we see here again, just like all of the Gospel of Thomas, the importance and the emphasis is placed on study. This is the parable of the pearl of great price, of great price as we read in the King James Bible and our Gospel narratives. But notice that Jesus Christ and Yahshua Messiah, or Yahweh, Yahweh himself, was extremely pleased with the man who sold everything he had, all she had, if you will, to go after that pearl of great price. What is pearl? What does it represent in Scripture? Well, we know a pearl is white, do we not? Thus it's pure. But a pearl scripturally represents wisdom, truth, imparted truth, more specifically, that Yahweh God gives to us. Now, if we have a pearl of great price, we can go out, we can bury it in the yard, we can refuse to share it with anybody, or we can share it with other people. Why? Because we have faith in that harvest. We know that that's the playing field. And the only way that we can successfully have a harvest and do the will that is the law of God is through unification, not division, according to the Gospel of Thomas. And so this man, this merchant, more importantly, sold all his goods for that pearl. He bought that one pearl. A, first and foremost, just like we covered, a merchant and a salesman cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. He did the right thing. B, secondly, he placed importance on wisdom above everything else. That's the difference between Christian identity and every other subsect of Christianity out there. They may play church. They may look good, easy believism. It may feel good to have your ears tickled. They may have gold-tinted pulpits and give you love gifts. But if it's not teaching you the truth, that is the truth that you should sacrifice everything for the Word of God. If you pick up your cross and bear it, then and only then are you worthy of Jesus Christ. And this is what he teaches. They're not teaching you that Get out of that church. They're just wasting your time. Understand that the average 501c3 Judeo-Christian pulpit out there spends about four to maybe eight verses in the course of a month. Meaning that the average Christian who goes out into a Judeo-Christian pulpit out there on the corner is fed one verse a week. At that rate, it would take in upwards of 5,000 years to read the Bible. And so these people who go, and they're one-verse Charlies, 
and they take one verse and they just read it and they go with it and they say oh, all of these things are not studying to show themselves approved. This man who sold everything and gave up, sacrificed everything, was. And so this should bring to remembrance another account in the, Old, in the New Testament. And that account was when the widows threw her might in the box. Indeed, there were many people who came along and they would throw lots of money in the donation box. Jesus sat there at the Temple of Jerusalem. He watched them come and go all day. And then along comes a widow. And that widow threw in and the equivalent of about two cents worth of money. And the people stood around Jesus Christ and they said, why, why would this lady, how, how can this lady's offering be acceptable? I put in lots of money and Jesus Christ said what made that widow's sacrifice acceptable was that she gave all she had. It wasn't how much she gave. It was the fact that she gave the only two cents she possessed. The natural man can go to Creflo Dollar Church. The natural man can put $50 to $100 a month. It's not going to buy him forgiveness of sins. It's not going to make him look any better in the eyes of God. What will, however, is giving all you have. Is that saying you should sell your house and just go live like a bum? No, indeed. What it's saying is we should war as a nation, as a race, and as a family, even on a local level, for the truth, and the truth alone. And we should do all we can do to see Yahweh's God, God's law enforced, especially in local government. Because if we do not, you have what you see before you, dear friends, a godless society that can go on and on and on, rejoicing in their own blasphemies. Though the harvest is great, there are few that are workers. Continuing in verse 76, part B. You too should seek for long-lasting treasures that do not decay, where moths do not come and eat them, or grubs to destroy them. And so, as I've been preaching this evening, and correlating all of this to, that is the teaching of Jesus Christ, to store up treasures in heaven as opposed to here on earth. Because these treasures we store up here on earth are merely creature comforts. We cannot take them with us. They will not gain us entrance into heaven. So we also must give not only of ourselves and our time, but all we have to the advancement of the kingdom age here on earth as it is in heaven. And so with that being established, dear kinsfolk, this is Pastor Visser once again from Brooks, Georgia. That is the heart of the dirty south, the outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia, wishing you and yours great studies. War for Christ. Amen.